Father, it is our great hope and great expectation that the word that you give to us is full of life, that it's full of truth, and that it does not return void, but that it always succeeds in the purpose for which you send it for. And when we hear of the promise that's given to us, when you even give to us such language full of image and full of the senses speaking of trees and running water and abundant fruit and life that is blessed and full of prosperity, Lord, we long for that. We need that. And we bring our lives before you as they are, marred by sin, weary from all that this world is, all that presses upon us, our own desires and aspirations, our own inability to find this sort of sustaining and this sort of fruitfulness that we long for. And we look to you, our Heavenly Father, who's given us your own word, declaring these things to be true, setting them forth. And we ask, Father, as we hear your word and as we consider it this morning, that you, our Lord Jesus, would be faithful to be our shepherd, to draw us to yourself, to cause your word to bear fruit in our lives, to bring us to yourself that we might, with full assurance and with full confidence, know that experience of being like a tree planted by streams of water, yielding fruit in its season. And Lord, that if that is not the case, if there are those among us who long for that but do not yet know that or maybe even skeptical that such a life is possible, Lord, would you do that work that only you can do, causing faith to exist where it does not, of causing living water to exist where there is only parched ground. Would you do that work of regeneration, of calling out of death and into life? Would you strengthen us this morning by your word and spirit, we pray. Amen. I wonder if you ever read the scriptures and at certain points or in certain places they make you uncomfortable. Uh, perhaps the language within the Bible or even the illustrations or the imagery, maybe it pushes against your particular assumptions of the way life ought to be or your particular thinking of how things ought to work together. And we certainly live in a day where having clearly defined categories and marked delineation between groups, such distinctives is quite often frowned upon. I think you will see and recognize that in our day, in our culture, blunt definition and any sense of precision is often preferably cast aside for more just broad generalities favoring a life perhaps even without definition altogether. Perhaps Psalm 1 is one of those texts that brings a level of discomfort to our lives because God is very blunt. He is very clear in these eight verses. The psalmist is deliberately making a great division amongst humanity. There are two categories, according to this introductory psalm, that every single human being can be placed into. Only two categories that every single man, woman, and child will ever be grouped into. You are either on the path of righteousness or the way of the wicked. It does not get more blunt than that. 
But even in saying that and even in reading that, you might well be asking, well, who are the righteous? Just who exactly are the wicked? And if I can be frank for a moment, can anyone actually say that they are the righteous ones? On what grounds? That sounds a bit presumptuous to me. Well, as you attempt to answer that, consider that God does state very plainly that he considers some to be righteous and some to be wicked. Really, our first exposure to the Psalter brings us to this fork in the road, a delineation between two types of people here. And because Psalm 1 and 2 essentially are an introduction to the entire book of Psalms, they are the preface to all that comes in the remaining 148 chapters, these two Psalms really become our introduction to everything that is going to be filled out in the rest of the Psalter. Themes that are going to arise here in this introduction that are going to be filled out with more color and more shape, given more definition and more language to help us understand the very things that are placed before us here. The themes of righteousness and wickedness are going to be the often repeated melody lines that resurface throughout this entire book. So this preface here to the book of Psalms seems to instruct us by the way of contrast. Because the delineation between true righteousness and real wickedness, it's pictured for us by these illustrations of contrast. So we are meant, as the hearer, to lay these instructions side by side, to hold them up next to our lives and to our way of thinking, in order that we then might see the differences between the two. We have a lesson by the way of contrast. What we're going to see this morning is that there's a contrast of formation, there is a contrast of fruitfulness, and ultimately a contrast of futures. Formation, fruitfulness, and futures. Let's consider this introduction and this overview by, first of all, recognizing this contrast of formation that is there in verses 1 and 2. Notice that our first contrast delineates between the sources of counsel that a person will receive in their life, the sort of shaping influence that will uh, give shape and purpose to a particular life. And what's here before us is both a negative and a positive example, a negative and a positive influence that will bring shaping formation to any life. And what the psalmist says is that there is a life of genuine blessing. There is a pathway to actually be supremely fulfilled and satisfied. And this distinction, by being blessed or not, satisfied or not, has everything to do with what you and I are being formed by. First example is that there are some who are formed by what we could call worldly counsel. There is a shaping influence that could just be summed up as worldly counsel there in verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So what the psalmist does is he sets off this example of worldly counsel by noting that there are 
essentially three things that this godly man, this blessed man, does not do. And there are really three parallel lines of thought. Three emphasis that are saying the same thing as you look at them in a whole. The walking, the standing, the sitting are essentially metaphors for a way of life. How you conduct your life. And we're meant, I believe, to notice the progression from moving from the wrong kind of counsel to standing in the wrong way of life to then sitting in the wrong kind of seat or authority. And I think it's also helpful to remember that these categories used here, are the wicked, the sinner, and the scoffer, they actually make up three categories of the fool, which we read so often of in the book of Proverbs. If you read through the book of Proverbs, there's all these Proverbs about what a fool is, what a fool says, what a fool does. And oftentimes, fool is synonymous with the wicked one, the scoffer, the sinner. So as we gather all that together, what we can say is that these are those who oppose God in their attitudes and in their behaviors. The sort of counsel that is just standoffish, at arm's length, skeptical, and opposed to any sort of counsel that would come from God himself. For the wicked, we know, is a word that's often used within the Psalter to describe those who are functionally atheist. They are non-theist functionally, meaning I do not want to live as if there is a God. I cannot consider the thought that there is a supreme being and authority, and I refuse to acknowledge such truth. The scriptures speak of these wicked men as proud, the sort of person who hates God's commands. We often read of them speaking lies and slanderous things, defaming God and his people. He also mentions that this sort of counsel, it comes from this category of those who are sinners, maybe more familiar to us today, but maybe misunderstood in what the scriptures are teaching. Sinners are those who are known chiefly by their disobedience to God's command. God says this, but to turn and disobey, to transgress, to disregard, the Bible calls that language, that is sin. And the scriptures speak of them in this way, this broad category of those who do not take Yahweh as their God and therefore want nothing to do with what Yahweh teaches. And then, of course, the scoffers. These are these arrogant people who we know love conflict, Psalm 22. Scoffers reject wisdom and correction, Proverbs 1.22. And here what we're told is to sit in the seat of such people is to completely identify and affirm their rebellion against God. So we could take all of this and say there is the sort of counsel that is just flat out opposed to God. And therefore, any implications, any assumptions that would come from this counsel, any working theories that would move from this sort of counsel is going to be contrary to God and to his rule. This is the sort of counsel, and this is the sort of forming life formation that is exposed by asking some very foundational questions. 
When you ask these questions, you will uncover the sort of working assumptions, the sort of counsel that is influencing them. What do I mean? Questions like, is man essentially good at the core, or is he corrupted in every single facet? How you answer that reveals the sort of counsel that you are being shaped by. Questions like this, is God truly king and authority over every life, or am I free to do as I like with the best that I can? Who decides right and wrong? The government? You? Your family? The going trends of the day? Well, related to that, if we're going to answer who decides what right and wrong is, let's ask what is good and what is evil? What shapes that understanding? Are these poles of good and evil, are they fixed? Or are they fluid? See, these are the very questions when you ask and when you offer up an answer, you're revealing the sort of formation that is shaping what you could call your worldview. Your understanding of how life ought to be and how you want your life to be. And when we begin with a framework that excludes God and his counsel, what the scriptures tell us is that we will inevitably get the sort of life that is destructive and God-hating. Friend, I would simply ask you to stop and consider what is shaping your life. What is it that has caused you to form up your world as it is or you want it to be? How are you arriving at these conclusions that you're making? I'm talking about the sort of thinking that frames up how you make sense of this world that we are living in. Are you thinking through and listening to the assumptions of your your college professors? For those of you that are home right now, returning back, whether you're in a public university, private university, whatever instruction that you are receiving and somebody is telling you this is the way that the world ought to work, are you thinking through the assumptions that are being given to you there? How have you come to the conclusion as to what is the ideal husband or the ideal spouse? What's framing up that sort of influence? Where did you get those ideas? What are the assumptions that are shaping, this is what a husband ought to be, this is what a wife ought to be, that's the kind of husband I want to find, that's the kind of spouse I want to marry? What is giving shape to your understanding of parenting? Or how you relate to your boss? Or what is the purpose of work? Have you figured that one out? How did you arrive there? Or what is the purpose of retirement? What is shaping that influence? See, all of this, all of these decisions, all of these markers that make up stages of life and decisions that we make, they come from somewhere. And the psalm straight out of the gate would tell us there is a contrast amongst humanity. Some are being formed and shaped by pure worldly counsel. This is what is put before us and warned against. And please don't think that the answers to these questions are trivial because God 
has ensured that the very first psalm would warn us of their, that there is a sort of counsel that leads to destruction. But that is laid in contrast by something else. There are those who are formed by worldly counsel, but there in verse 2, there is another formation happening. There are those who are formed by God's own counsel. Look back at verse 2. In contrast to these, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Notice here that the contrast is not simply in what the blessed man does, but what he or she delights in. This is our clue right here that this category between righteous and wicked, it's more than just outward actions. Because verse 2 gets at motive. It gets at the issue of desire. If we're going to understand righteousness and wickedness, verse 2 is our clue that it has more to do with than with your outward actions. Because delight is really the distinguishing factor in what the psalmist says here. The blessed one, the righteous one, has newfound affections for the wisdom of God. The scriptures are his delight, so much so that they consume his thoughts. For when a man or when a woman is free to think about anything, and they love to return to the scriptures, that is meditation. When you have a long drive and there's time before you, and just when your thoughts gravitate towards that portion of scripture that you read or that was preached or that you were considering within your family, and you just begin to turn it over in your mind and to think upon it, to draw other applications, to ask questions, or just to pray through it. The blessed man, the one who is receiving and being formed by godly counsel, delights in God's word. Meditation is not the dull and dismal practice of a reluctant conformist. It's the newfound delight of every worshiper of God. The emphasis, though, of this text is more than mere intellectual study. Be careful here. It doesn't just say that the blessed one finds delight in studying the Lord's commands. The psalmist's aim is deeper and it is much wider because true delight is not content to stop with mere intellectual consideration. It must move, must move, brothers and sisters, into joyful obedience. That's what's carried with meditation. It's not just a head detached from the will. It is a mind and it is a body. It is a will that is engaged. Verse 2 could rightfully be understood as he finds pleasure in obeying the Lord's commands. I think the prophet Ezra comes to mind as the great example of this, this little short biographical statement in Ezra chapter 7. Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his rules and statutes to Israel. To study, to do, to teach. I think that's much of what the psalmist has in mind here with this idea of delighting in the law of the Lord, meditating in it day and night. You see, this distinction right here of motive, of delight, it gets really at the very foundation of what it means to be a Christian. 
Maybe you've never really been clear on this or you've been asking, what is it that makes a Christian? Well, in part, you're going to want to think through this issue of delight, of affections. I think this is why Augustine loved to write and talk about what he called disordered affections. One of the polluting and corrupting effects of sin is the distortion of the loves and hates of our hearts. One of the polluting and corrupting effects of sin is that as image bearers of God, we no longer love what we ought to love, nor hate what we ought to hate. See, what the scriptures teach is that as image bearers of God, we have been created to live as a reflection of all that God loves and all that God hates. But the reality is this. Everything that God has said that is is true, is good, and is beautiful, we have been created and commanded to say amen to that. And everything that God has said is twisted, is corrupted, and wicked, were to reject. But part of the issue and the effects of sin is that our delights are twisted. So where can you see the disordered corruption of sin upon your delights? Think about not just what you do, but what you're drawn to. Think upon your past week and look at the trajectory or even scan back further and look at the patterns within your life. Where are the disordered and disassociated loves? Have they just gone askew? If we were to lay the word of God alongside our way of life, what sort of dissonance would we see? And the things that we're called to delight in, the things that we're called to run from, You see, the experience of genuine blessing, according to this psalm, comes only when we repent of these corruptions, confessing them to be sin, and that we see our great need is to delight in the law of God. When we do so, we are actually walking in step with our Lord Jesus, who was able to say, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, for your law is within my heart. That's actually Psalm 40, verse 6, another psalm of David. But as you probably know, as we take up the psalms of David, they point us not only to this king, but to God's own king, who would be able to say with perfect precision, I delight to do your will, because your law is written in my heart. John Stott said this, delight is an indication of new birth. Think about that. Delight is an indication of new birth because the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. That's Romans 8. And as a result of the inward regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, however, the godly find that they love the law of God simply because it conveys to them the will of their God. They do not rebel against its exacting demands. Their whole being approves of it and endorses in it, delighting in it. The godly will meditate on it, pour over it constantly, day or night. So what we see here. The contrast between the righteous and the wicked, for one, it's a contrast of formation. 
But there's another illustration given to us. There is a second contrast, what we could call the contrast of fruitfulness. He is like a tree, verse 3, planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. What we see here is that these verses move really from what the blessed man does to a description of, of how he lives. The contrast between righteousness and wickedness comes down to this issue of fruitfulness. That is the great distinction. The contrast here is set between the tree that is sustained versus the chaff that is cast aside. Consider what we're told about the tree that's sustained here. According to the psalmist, the one who studies and obeys the law of Yahweh also knows true prosperity. What do you think of when you hear that word prosperity? I would imagine most of us think of the standard of life or the sort of ease of circumstances, the access to particular luxuries that are beyond the ordinary. If I am prosperous, I have access to something that not everybody has access to. Just this past week, my family and I on vacation down in Newport Beach, driving up and down PCH, passing Bugattis and Ferraris, looking at massive houses on the, on the hill, playing the game of, is that a resort or is that a house? It'd be easy to conclude as you're surrounded by luxuries that are beyond the ordinary that to live here would be the definition of prosperity. Think about it. We even have a whole heretical emphasis within the church today known as the prosperity gospel, which essentially seeks to distort the truth of the gospel by overlaying materialism and pagan ideas of karma on top of it. And so when you read in your Bibles that, hey, the blessed man will prosper, we need to be careful. Because we can often take these ideas of prosperity and say, I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. What does that actually mean? In contrast to these distorted views of prosperity, Scripture does tell us there is a life that prospers. And we are given a lesson by a picture specifically an image of a tree. We're told that it is a tree that's planted by flowing streams. It's well watered. It's saturated so that it remains ever fruitful. It is so nourished that even when other trees are losing their leaves through the heat of drought and dry seasons, this tree remains verdant. In a world that's looking to hawk the latest pitch to offer prosperity or satisfaction, the scriptures right here announce that real prosperity can be known and can be experienced. Genuine satisfaction, the sort of nourishment that soaks down to the roots and is sweetened by abundant fruitfulness, can be known. This life is the life of true blessing. This life is the life of righteousness. This blessing, though, is only to be had by who? According to this, 
those who are being formed by the law of God. Those who delight in the good authority and the good instruction of Yahweh. For abundant fruit is what we are told God creates and God desires for his people. Just as God spoke and he caused trees to bear fruit in the garden, his word continues to go forth and cause good fruit to bear forth in the lives of his people. The language of Psalm 1-3 is actually an echo of the creation narrative. I want you to think upon what the psalmist is doing here, especially if you're not the poetic type. If you don't think in imagery and illustration, if you're more the epistle type where you like clauses and logic and you like clear bullet lines with marks, listen to the imagery that's being given here and use your sanctified imagination to hear what is happening in these verses. Psalm 1-3 is an echo of Genesis 1 let God And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation and plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit and which is their seed according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds and trees bearing fruit and which is their seed according to its kind. And God saw it was good. And the same image of fruitfulness, it's picked up again. It's not just an echo of Genesis. It's actually an echo of what is to come in the new heavens and the new earth. Because we are told that flowing through the middle of the new Jerusalem is the river of water of life. And on either side of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. So what is the emphasis here? What is the psalmist painting for us? Whether in Eden, whether in the new heavens and the new earth, or whether here in Psalm 1, What is the emphasis of scripture? Fruitfulness is the result of dwelling with God. When God's people are with God, they bear fruit. Where man is united to the triune God, planted by the rivers of living water, God's people bear fruit. To dwell with God is the place of fruitfulness. If you want to bear fruit, if you want to know satisfaction, if you want to know the nurturing life of being completely saturated with leaves that do not wither, you must be dwelling with, united to this God. Now we'll come back to this in verse 6 as it is picked up again. Because living in the light of his presence, enjoying his good rule and the submission to his ways, that is the place of of fruitful abundance. But the foundation is already being laid here. Only those and only those who dwell with God and delight in in his ways will know this experience of fruitful abundance. The contrast to this is verse four. It's the chaff that are separated. Just in case we were not clear, the contrast in verse 4 is set in the most blunt terms. The wicked are not so. That's it. Of all the language and all the description, century language that we're, we're given to describe the righteous, it is depressingly blunt and plain. The wicked 
are not so. They are like the chaff, which the wind drives away. In contrast to the righteous, there are those who delight in wicked counsel. They suppress the good truth of God. They mock God's wisdom, and they suppress all of this in unrighteousness. They are not like well-watered trees. They're like the chaff that the wind drives away. What is that? Well, chaff is a common biblical metaphor that we would do well with to be acquainted with because it's not just used here. It's throughout the scriptures. It's an image not of fruitfulness, but of worthlessness. Let that sink in. The chaff is the thin husk that must be separated from the meaty grain of wheat that is separated in the harvest process. Chaff is this repeated image of scripture reminding us that within the harvest process, there is a clear and coming separation, a division between what is going to be preserved and what is going to be cast aside. The meaty Heads of grain will be gathered and brought together into a bountiful harvest, but the dry and flimsy chaff or husk that is around the grain, it will be blown away, scattered, cast off, done away with. Take note, however strong the standing of sinners might seem, back to verse 1, however high and lofty the seat of scoffers may appear to be, in the end, the word of God promises they will be like chaff, which is blown away. Even the most lightest breeze like we had yesterday picks this up and moves it away. God will not be mocked. Just as his trees are well watered unto fruitfulness, He assures us that he will destroy the one who mocks him. Although wicked bosses, unrighteous senators, scoffing professors may stand tall now unless they repent, ultimately the wicked will be done away with like chaff. All the power, all the influence that wickedness may hold now and usurp for a season will eventually be just whisked away by the wind. God will destroy with the breath of his mouth. And by this, brothers and sisters, the Holy Spirit would be teaching us to live by faith and not by sight. We are called to live by the declaration of God's word and not the boasting of press conferences or news headlines that we can scroll through. What otherwise might seem impossible to you or even improbable to you will come to pass. Listen to Calvin in his commentary on this. For although the ungodly man may rise high and appear to be a great advantage like a stately tree, we may rest assured that he will even as chaff or refuse, whenever God chooses to cast him down from his highest state with the breath of his mouth. The contrast between the righteous and the wicked, it is also a contrast of fruitfulness. But there's a third and final contrast given to us. Not just the contrast of formation or the fruitfulness from this blessed man's life, but there is lastly the contrast of futures. The contrast of 
futures. Verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The final contrast is the most sobering. It is the most glaring. Beyond the contrast of the shaping influences that inform our thoughts, the prosperity of sustained fruitfulness, there remains this ultimate distinction of future judgment. Because the wicked is not delighted in God's law, but preferred wicked counsel, because the wicked is not like a well-watered tree, but he is like chaff, the wicked will not endure the judgment. Ultimately, the wicked will most certainly perish. To stand in judgment, that phrase, to stand in judgment, it means to endure. It would speak of being examined, being brought forward to judgment, but remaining standing. You were tested and you passed. In contrast to the righteous, the wicked will not endure this judgment. They will not pass. They will not remain standing. They will be struck down. And in parallel thought, the second stanza of verse 5, it presses this further because sinners will not be brought into the congregation of the righteous. There is clearly a line being drawn by God's own word saying, these are righteous, these are unrighteous. This is the congregation of my holy people. Outside of that are the unrighteous. Inside will be preserved. Outside will be judged. There are those who know abundant life of fruitfulness, and there are those who will perish. Now remember, this is an introductory psalm. The themes that are introduced here are unfolded throughout the Psalter as they are reflections of the very same themes that run throughout really all of, all of Scripture. And the theme of coming judgment is one of the primary themes that is woven throughout all of the narrative of Scripture. The Lord knows the way of his people. What we're told here is that he sees them and that he promises to deal with them differently than he does the wicked. Meaning this king who's been set on his throne, he's not haphazard. He's not flippant. He's not making some rash emotional decision someday and half this kingdom wiped out. This king, He sees and he knows his people. They stand because he knows who are his. He knows the way of the righteous. The language here implies that he will mark out his people. He will watch over them. He will guard them, tend them, preserve them, keep them even from this this coming judgment. Certainly, as we rehearse that, we would say this actually bears out with the overarching theme of Scripture. God created this world. Very good. But his created ones, his image bearers, they transgress his law. They incur judgment. Going back to Genesis 3 there in verse 15, we are though given this this promise of triumph over the one who tempted man to sin, this promise that hints 
there may actually be a path forward where judgment is somehow rolled back and the, the world is made new. There is one who would come who would set things right. And that's exactly what unfolds throughout the pages of Scripture, isn't it? God has set his son upon his throne, and he will rule his world in perfect righteousness. He will bring an end to all wickedness, ensuring that, again, we will be able to look at the world and say, this is very good. That is what God is doing. But we need to be very careful careful here and listen to this introductory psalm alongside the entirety of Scripture. Because the all-important question every single one of us should be asking right now is, who are the righteous? Am I righteous? How is God's Son going to deal with me? If we take... Psalm 1, at face value. After all, every promise of Psalm 1, every flourishing description of the blessed life, every hope of comfort, it's given only to one group, the righteous, not the wicked. Who then are the righteous? That is the most important question you could ever ask, and the most important question you could ever ever have answered for you by Scripture. I think we're helped in part by Psalm 2. Remember that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are the introductory psalms, and they actually form kind of this inclusio as it begins with, blessed is the one, and the last verse of chapter 2 said, these are the ones who are blessed. We are helped by chapter 2 because Psalm 2 announces that God has set his king upon his throne. The nations have rebelled against this king. And the the theme of judgment, it's here again, warning everyone that the rejection of this king will invoke the wrath of the king. But not for everyone. There are some who are shielded from his judgment. Who are they? They are the very ones who rebelled, but they're not damned. How could this be? Who are they? Psalm 2, verse 12. The ones who take refuge in him. The ones who take refuge in the Son. So this clarifies for us the all-important distinction between the categories of wicked and righteous. Do we become righteous by our own moral resolve to separate ourselves from ungodliness? Does the further you get from ungodliness somehow move you on the scale of righteousness? Some would say yes. What do the scriptures say? Is that possible? Do we become righteous by just delighting enough in the law of God? Some mystical experience, if I can just get all of my desires to be that next level to really draw near to the Lord and delight more, then I am confident I will be the righteous. Well, how much delight is enough? Couldn't you delight more? Well, then how can you really know if you're righteous? But someone tell you that it's your zeal for delighting in God that will really assure you of the sense of righteousness. Again, these themes 
or the introduction to very critical questions that everyone must ask. The delineation between righteous and wicked is one of the primary categories in Scripture. Romans 3, verse 10, as it is written, none is righteous. There's your answer. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know, Paul says, that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness, there's that word again, the righteousness of God has been manifested Apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, for they are justified by grace. The very ones who have received the Lord Jesus and his righteousness by faith. He was put forward as a propitiation, this sacrifice that took away, that absolved the wrath of God, absorbing it, paying the cost of the wicked And by this sacrificial death, wicked people are made righteous. That is how. Their disordered loves are reordered by the work of the Holy Spirit. And now the very work, the word of God that they despise, they love, they delight in. When they once scoffed and mocked, the very one that they scoffed and mocked, they now consider life They consider to be the source of all lasting prosperity. You see, the description of the blessed man here in Psalm 1 is the one who's come to see that God has set his son on the throne and he has bowed his knee to this son in humble submission. The blessed one is not the righteous one who's righteous on his own merit and his zeal for God, but he sought refuge in God's own son. So ultimately... What we can say is this, the great contrast of Psalm 1 comes down to this one delineation. What will you do with the Lord Jesus? It is a question that does not fade away. It continues to press our conscience through each psalm and through each day that we have been given life. What will I do with the Lord Jesus? Will I know righteousness? Or will I know destruction? Friend, is it, a, it is a question that is, that is before you this morning. 
And church, it is a question that is placed before us, reminding us of where true blessing and satisfaction comes from and is found in. Do you long for the law of God to become a delight to you? So much so that you study it, that you meditate upon it, that you love to gather when it is read and preached, that you love to read and meditate more upon the marrow and the truth of God's word? Do you long to know the deep satisfaction that comes from genuine fruitfulness, to be like the tree that's planted by living waters? All of this is held out to you, and it's promised to anyone who comes to Christ in faith, seeking to be made new, washed clean, and instructed by God. This is the gateway not only to the entire Psalter, but to the entire way of life. That is what is given before us. So may the Lord continue to water us by his word, forming us and shaping us into his own image. Would you pray with me and ask him that he would do this? Father, we lay ourselves before you, recognizing humbly and in good conscience that not one of us suddenly just began our lives as the righteous one. But Lord, every single one of us, regardless of any sort of gift that you have given or location that we've been raised in or massive scripture that has been given to us as children, we begin as the mockers, the wicked, the scoffers, the sinners. But Lord, we rejoice to hear that you take those same people, that same sort of counsel, and you smash it, and you reform it, and you reshape it by your living word. Lord, we ask that you would take any counsel that is in our lives that is an affront to you, that is scoffing and mocking at your good ways and created order, and that you would smash it, that you would show us to be what it truly is, the emptiness and the vanity, the impossibility of it ever bringing life-giving, sustaining nourishment. And Lord, we pray that you would shape us ultimately by your word, that what you say is good and true and right, we would say amen to. And even in hard providence, that we would learn to be able to say, this too is good because I received it from the hand of my Father. Lord, help us shape us, continue to renew us and refresh us. We long to know that experience of delighting in your word, being refreshed and nourished, that we might know the sweet abundance of fruitfulness in our lives, the sort of fruit that remains, the sort of fruit that gives you glory. So do this by your word and by your spirit, for Christ's sake and for our own good, we pray. Amen.